as we go through this entire chapter, Luke chapter 15, we quickly begin to realize that there are basically two different types of people. Those in fellowship with God, the saved, and those that are separated from God, the lost. And that's what Luke 15 is all about. Those that are separated from God. Here Jesus tells three parables about separation. And they give us three valuable lessons concerning separation. The first one of these is how men become separated. The sad fact is that most people are separated from God. We learned that from Matthew 7, 13, and 14. The most common way people become separated is by straying away, like lost sheep. Why, why do sheep stray? They're, they're there with the shepherd who leads them to grass and water, and yet they stray. Why, why in the world would you leave that? Why in the world would anybody leave the presence of God, leave the church? Well, it's not because they don't like the shepherd. And it's not because they don't like the other sheep. Primarily, it's because they get busy doing other things. They get busy grazing, and they don't think about or pay attention to where they're going. Many people become separated almost unintentionally. Some people become separated like a lost sheep. Some people become separated like a lost coin through the carelessness of others. And sometimes, like a prodigal son, people become separated from God willfully. Now this son is different. He didn't stray like a sheep. He was not separated through the neglect of others like the lost coin. He separated himself deliberately and knowingly. And that is a powerful thought. To realize that anybody, anywhere, anytime can become lost. Brings us to lesson number two. The significance of being separated from God. If you're separated from God, you are lost. That's a terrible word in any sentence you put it in. Lost. And notice that lost here is present tense. It does not say that the sheep would be lost. It was. It's not that the coin would be lost. It was. The sheep and the coin, they were lost. The son left home and became separated, lost. If you're separated, you're lost like the sheep gone astray. And sadly... 
you're worthless, like a lost coin. Now, you still have your same intrinsic value. Like a lost coin, a quarter is worth 25 cents. But it's become useless. If I lose a quarter, that 25 cents is useless to me. As far as your usefulness to God for permanent good, you don't have any because you're separated, because you're lost. If you're lost, if you're separated, you are degraded. The far country represents sin. Now, the devil's picture of sin, of the far country, is fun, laughter, games, pleasure, no real harm in any of that. But the reality of it is it's a hog pen. I don't know how many of you have been around hog pens, but that's not a very uh, delightful place to be. The concern of this passage, it's not really primarily the love of the shepherd for the flock or the search of the woman for the lost coin. Or even the desire of the Father for the Son to come back. If we look into these parables, if we look into this entire passage, this is a passage primarily about joy. Joy over the found sheep, over the recovered coin, and over a returned son. Joy that desired to be shared. When we see prodigals come back, do we express that joy in their return like the Father did? Third lesson taught here is how God feels about our separation from Him. We see how God feels about it in five things that He did. Surely God, the Father, represents God. We see that He waited. We see that He looked for this Son. We see that He ran to Him. We see that He forgave Him. And we see that He rejoiced. It's easy to see the bad in the prodigal son. And so often we focus on on the bad. It's called the prodigal son for a reason. It's not a real good term. But maybe we ought to look at it a little bit differently and look at it as the returned son. It's easy to see his riotous, wasteful living. To see and smell the hog pen. But let's... Wait just a minute. Let's not be like the Pharisees. Remember at the beginning of the passage, the Pharisees and scribes are accusing Jesus. He's receiving and eating with sinners. How scandalous. We need to cultivate our ability to see the good in people. There's always just 
at least a little bit there. If we take a closer, more thoughtful look, we can see and probably be surprised at all of the good that we find in this prodigal son. He had a good work ethic. He would not steal. He wouldn't beg. Even when he was at the end of his strength and hunger, he wouldn't steal or beg. He hired himself out to the lowliest of jobs. He became a feeder of pigs. We need to understand how low this boy has sank. This is the ultimate disgrace for a Jew. He's feeding swine. This young man would not blame others. You know, the hardest statement for us to other is, I have sinned. We want to say, I have sinned, but it wasn't my fault. I have sinned, but these circumstances, so on and so forth. This boy wouldn't do that. He realized that his sin was against God. And in all of this, he did not give in to despair. So often, so many people today, in different levels of despair, give in and give up. He didn't do that, even though he had a lot to despair about. He had sinned. We see his selfishness, his foolishness. And then there's the big one, the one that is emphasized. Is it immorality? No, it's not immorality. Now, maybe he had been, but Jesus doesn't say so. The elder, the elder brother accused him of being immoral, but that's probably just an assumption. The big one here is riotous or wasteful living. Verse 13. The literal Greek rendering is, he scattered the property of him living prodigally. Prodigal means exceedingly or recklessly wasteful. This boy had wasted everything and he had reaped starvation. You know, one thing about separating, being separate from God is that when we are separated from the presence of God, no matter where we are, the famine comes. This boy had reaped starvation financially, physically, socially, psychologically, and spiritually. In every way, he hit rock bottom. What do you do when you hit rock bottom? What did Judas do when he hit rock bottom? He gave in to despair like so many others do. What did Peter do when he hit rock bottom? This young man did what Peter did. He came to himself. Why did he come to himself? What brought that about? 
Well, it's not because some brother and sister went over and scolded him with the cold hard facts of his lostness. They didn't go give him a talking to. It's because he started thinking about his father and how good it had been at home. And also, unlike so many others, in thinking about this, he acted upon it. Unlike so many others, he went back home. Few people ever come back from the far country. Most probably think they will. And some even talk about it and contemplate doing that very thing and even intend to. But so very few actually do. Why is that? Why do people know they need to come back? Know they're separated from God. Know how good it is to be in the presence of God. To be in a covenant relationship with Him. But they still don't come back. Well, it's hard. It's hard to come back. It's hard to face the people that you left. This, this young boy went away, Mr. Moneybags. And look how he's going to have to come back. One thing is important in this parable, in this entire chapter, and it's often overlooked. The three parables in Luke 15, and especially the parable of the prodigal son, have a specific audience. Luke 15, 1 through 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, and another parable, and another parable. Part of this original audience is the indignant scribes and Pharisees. They weren't truly interested in the kingdom themselves, yet they were angered and disgruntled when they saw Jesus welcome the moral outcast and black sheep of Jewish society. A certain man had two sons. You know what both of these sons were? Both of them were sinners. One away from home and one at home. One against the flesh and one against the spirit. One was an obvious sinner. You could so obviously see it. His sins are the first thing you notice about him. But the other was an unobvious sinner. He was good. And that's the first thing you notice about him. In verse 25, we find him in the field. He's doing his father's work. He is presented as a hard-working, honest, religious person. No doubt he was respected. No doubt he's his father's good son. And also, no doubt that he is representative of the Pharisees. We need to look for the good in people. 
But we also need to be able to see the bad. Because love should not be blind. Why do we need to identify elder brothers among us? Well, one reason is so we don't make elders in the church out of them. Another reason is to help them. Because elder brothers do not go to heaven. Elder brothers are separated from God the Father. And three, to be able to tell if we're one. The elder son was angry and hateful. It's demonstrated in his actions. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. Verse 30, but when the son, this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Sadly, this elder brother's hatred is emulated by people today, by people in the church today. It is equaled and sometimes even surpassed. Many are going the elder son one better. They're in the house keeping others out of it. Would you want to enter a house where this guy is? Would you want to be part of a church where this is the leadership? We've got to be able to see the good along with the bad wherever it is. Hatred is condemned, 1 John 2 and 11. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 1 John three fifteen. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 4 and 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now some might say, well, he didn't hate his brother, he just didn't like what he, what he did. You know, uh, hate the sin but love the sinner. That's, that's where the, the older brother is. That's not where the older brother is. His actions show hatred towards his brother. He was selfish. This elder son needed to go to the optometologist because he had major eye trouble. He's like some people today, they got problems with personal pronouns. All of his pronouns were I, 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 me, me, me. Just look at the pronouns in verse 29. Personal pronouns. Selfishness. 
tends to be repeated. This older brother's selfishness was repeated by the younger brother's selfishness. And the brothers are basically alike. One thought he had to leave home to get what he wanted, so he did. One thought he had to stay home to get what he wanted, and so he did. And selfishness is so ugly. It's ugly because in and of itself it's ugly, but it's ugly also because it is accompanied by jealousy and envy. When we look at verse 29, we see that this brother didn't want a younger brother. He wanted to go. He had all the comforts of home, a much larger inheritance. Yet he envied one party. He was superior, or so he thought. And this might be where we tend to be more like the younger brother. And sometimes we don't even know it. Because prodigals return. Because sinners come in. And we look down on them. We think of ourselves as superior to them. There are some very negative results of superiority. Lack of growth is a big one. Superior people don't really grow personally or in the church. Superior people don't do much evangelism. And what they do most often does more harm than good. They don't grow in wisdom and grace and knowledge because they don't need to. Because they've learned it all. I have reached maturity. I'm here. I'm superior. Superior people fail to have the mind of Christ. Jesus was superior. But he didn't have that superior air about him. Remember the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is so very approachable. People came to Jesus in their sinful brokenness that wouldn't even begin to take a step toward a Pharisee. Those righteous leaders of the Jews. He was a friend of publicans, a friend of sinners. We can be morally pure and not superior. We need to watch out for that one. This elder brother was judgmental. Verse 30. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. There's a couple of three things here. Now, either it was true, and he had hired detectives to go find out, or it was plain old gossip, or he was throwing empty accusations judging his brother by himself. He didn't want his brother to be forgiven. The Jewish mentality, the Jewish belief was that God was merciful to the righteous people. But they were quite sure that he didn't have 
much of anything to do with sinners. The Pharisees had a saying, There is joy before God when those who provoke Him perish from the world. I don't know about you, but that's not my father. Jesus said there is joy in heaven before the angels when one sinner repents. There ought to be just as much joy in the church when one sinner repents or one prodigal comes back. What this older brother would have liked was for his father to tell him to get out. Or maybe if he put his brother on probation for a year. And of course, older brother gets to be probation officer. Dad, at least give him one good whooping. When it comes to the church, often there's the attitude that we need to see these reprobates punished. They don't need to get off too easy. They deserve it. Well, brethren, so do you and I. They deserve the same hell that we deserve. And they deserve the same grace and mercy and forgiveness that God gave us. Don't be elder brothers. No wonder people don't come down the aisle when they need help. No wonder prodigals don't return to the church. Because so many times the first people they meet is not the father who's waiting and watching and seeing them a long way off and runs to meet them. Before that, they run into the older brother. It's not necessary for one to journey into the far country to leave God. Some leave God sitting in the very pews we're occupying today. One can stay home, not know his father, and not know his father's heart, and be lost at home as well as anywhere else. But look at what the father did. In... Jewish society, this father would have been labeled a fool. Number one, you prematurely split your property. Number two, when this son came back, you did all, you bestowed all these gifts on him. And above all that that you wasted on him, you killed the fatted calf. You made this boy out to be a king. We need to understand how revolutionary this restoration, this forgiveness is. In Jewish society then and in our society today. We see the demonstration of restoration in four gifts. The gift of a ring, a symbol of restored wealth, power, honor, position, a symbol of unending contract. We see the gift of shoes, 
To be shoeless was a sign of an orphan. And the father wanted everybody to know that this was his son. He took away the sign of an orphan and put on him the symbol of a restored son. And we see a robe. We see not just a robe, but the best robe. The custom of the day was, if you had uh, an event and people over, they would come in, and if you were well off enough to have the appropriate servant, they washed their feet. If not, the guest would wash his own feet. And then you gave them a robe. But in that closet full of robes, there was one that was the best robe. That was the place of honor. Highest honor. And that's the robe that the father put on this prodigal son. Nothing less than the best robe would do for him. He put the best robe on a raggedy, smelly, dirty hog slopper. What an illustration of amazing grace. The deeper we look into this story, we see some problems with restoration. And you think, well, what's the problem with restoration? It's not our I mean, it's not God's problem. It's our problem. We see and begin to realize how scandalous grace and mercy from God actually is. You know, even after God restores you, you have to bear the consequences of being separated. And there's where the problems of restoration come in. And there are a few sources where these problems come from. One, there's the community. Now, this boy was far off, and he had to come back through the same town he left. And you can imagine, as he got closer and closer to town, the more of the community saw him, saw what shape he came back in, and remembered what shape he left in. And the community is not favorable. That's the father's bad son. He's the wild one. They'll look on you with suspicion for a long time. Secondly, a problem of restoration comes from the brethren. It's easy to see where this prodigal's main source of problems was. It's not with the father. It's with his brother. Can you imagine having to live with this guy? Now, home was better than the hog pen, but it sure wasn't paradise. It's an issue facing the early church. What do we do with those who have denied Christ but returned? There's one guy from a congregation back home who was talking to an elder about this very thing. And he said, we need these people in the church. And the elder said, we don't need those kind. Those are sad words from a shepherd of the flock. We need to remember, except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you ain't getting in heaven. And then there is, of course, yourself, which is probably where the biggest problem of restoration sets. 
You know, you picked up a lot of habits in that far country. Satan got a hold of you. And he ain't going to let go. You've got to pry yourself away from him. But we also see in this parable the solution to the problem. It's forgiveness. There are three areas that forgiveness needs to be made in. Number one, there is forgiveness of God. That is the main thing and truly essential. It's no problem with God if you really want it. It's seen in the wonderful demonstration of the four gifts that the Father gives this Son. There is forgiveness of the brethren. This is necessary. It's necessary for the community's benefit. Now, the community forgiveness will come, and it will come much sooner if they see the church's forgiveness. It's necessary for the prodigal's benefit. It's going to be harder for him than before. We all need help. And prodigals need help and encouragement for a little while at least, more than anybody else. But the sad thing is that many prodigals are lost a second time because the brethren make it too difficult for them to stay. They're too hard on them. They're not forgiving enough. They're not accepting enough. They're not rejoicing over their return. They're standing over here. Well, I wonder how long it's going to last this time. You know, in the last six months, this guy's been down this aisle five times. So what? That's five times that you have a chance to surround a brother or sister and build them up. To rejoice and throw them a feast. Welcoming them back, accepting them back. You know, this son wasn't restored to a second-class sonship. He came back wanting to be made a slave. That didn't happen. Before any of that was ever, ever even mentioned, the father has already run to him and fell on him and kissed him. And then after the prodigal says, make me a servant in your house. I'm not worthy to be your son. The father said, I ain't having it. He's restored to full sonship. And we need to be a part of that in extending that forgiveness as well. You know what some of the scariest words in scripture is for me? It comes from what is called traditionally the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Is that not the scariest thing you ever read? Now, I'm, think about it, church. Think about it for just a minute. When we look at the lost, when we look at those who have gone astray, for the, we look at the ones that have fell through the cracks because we may not have been as inviting 
as we should be. We may not have lifted them up as we should. When we think about the ones that have left and are coming back, and we begin to feel superior, we begin to look down on them because they're so dirty, like we're so clean. Think about that. Because that's exactly how God's going to forgive you. Sometimes I shudder. Because I know I have not been as forgiving as I should have been. Forgiveness of self may be. May be Satan's strong, strongest hold on us. David addresses the difficulty of forgiving yourself in Psalm 51, 7 through 13. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. You know what helps us forgive ourselves? The joy of salvation. The restoration of that joyful salvation. That comes only with an awareness of God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of ourselves. The hardest part of Christianity is not initial obedience. As hard as that is sometimes, it's living it day in and day out. Living it for the long haul. It's bearing the long twilight struggle year in and year out. Walking in the light. It's even harder when the brethren are in disunion from one another. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, devoted to prayer, continuing, or excuse me, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Romans 12, 9 through 13. One thing we need to remember... In all this rejoicing, in the rejoicing of the sheep that was found, the coin that was recovered, and the son that returned home, there is great sadness because the elder brother is outside the house. The father goes out and entreats him to come in. And the story ends with the elder brother outside the house the house what are we going to do with the elder brother treat him like a lost sheep 
Treat him like a lost coin. Treat him like a prodigal son. The same way we treat everybody else. With the forgiveness, love, compassion that God treats us with. Thank you. Thank you, Shane. We do appreciate that. We're going to take a 15-minute break here. And our next next session in here will be Lazarus and the Rich Man uh, by Ben Buchanan from Eagle River. In room 2122 will be the parable of the ten virgins from, uh, from our brother uh, Gordon Johnson. And the last lady session will happen in room 1920 on uh, the lost sheep uh, where sisters uh, Natalie Perkle and Grace Shelbreck from the Valley Congregation. We will be back in here at uh, 3.30. Thank you.